Hey friends, welcome to God on Tap. And as always, I am Nika Spaulding and we are pressing on into Lamentations 2 today. So we're going to look at Lamentations chapter 2 verses 11 through 19. Lamentations chapter 2 verses 11 through 19. My eyes were worn out with tears. My innards were roiled. My bile spilled out on the ground for the breaking of my people's daughter. When the babe and the suckling grew faint in the squares of the city, to their mothers they say, Where is grain and wine? As they faint like the slain in the squares of the city. How can I bear witness for you? What can I liken to you, O daughter of Jerusalem? What can I compare to you and console you, O virgin Zion's daughter? For great as the sea is your breaking, who can heal you? Your prophets saw visions for you, empty and insipid, and did not lay bare your crime to restore your fortunes, and saw visions for you of emptiness and delusion. They clapped their hands over you, all who passed by. They hissed and wagged their heads over Jerusalem's daughter. Is this the city of which was said, the perfection of beauty, the joy of all the earth? They open wide their mouths to mock you, all your enemies. They hissed, they gnashed their teeth, they said, we obliterated her. Why this day for which we hoped we have attained it, we have seen it. The Lord has done what he had planned. He carried out his utterance that he charged in the days of old. He destroyed and had no mercy, and the enemy rejoiced over you. He raised the horn of your foes, their heart cried out to the master. O wall of Zion's daughter, shed like a brook your tears day and night. Give yourself no respite. Let your pupils be not still. Arise, sing out in the night at the beginning of the watches. Pour out your heart like water before the presence of the Lord. Raise your palms to him over the life of your babes, faint with famine. This is the word of the Lord. Okay, so yesterday we talked about how the narrator has moved from, uh, you know, really cool outward observer in chapter one to yesterday he joins with daughter Zion and raging against God. He's like, God, you threw her to the ground. You obliterated her. You did these things and you plan to do this. And so you see the narrator is moving toward her. So today what we see is really this emotional movement continues to move forward. So he went from cool outward observer in chapter one to the first half of chapter two, he's like raging against God. He's agreeing with daughter Zion that God has done these things. We know it's through the hand of Babylon. Like Babylon's the one that actually did it, but God is the one that did it. And then today we see him as this empathetic and counselor type role to her. It's a really credible movement. And so what we get in today's passage is really a glimpse of what does it look like if you come upon a situation and and then all of a sudden you're like, oh, okay, this is really bad. And now that I'm seeing it with my own eyes, I'm like feeling things and I'm, I'm united with you in your grief. And so I think today is actually a really beautiful picture of what it means to grieve with other people who are going through things. So it's like, I mean, right now, like as I'm recording this, Ida has absolutely pounded through Louisiana and it's made its way up to New York and there's massive flooding in New York City right now. And I've been to both those places, both New Orleans and 
and New York City. And so there's a part of me that if I had read on the news, like, oh, New York City gets slammed by hurricane, I'd be like, oh, well, okay, you need better infrastructure. But there's probably a great way that I could talk about it, like a Lamentations One way of talking about it. Wow, this great city with all these you know, busy streets and, and trains and trolleys that run nonstop and like the hub of activity in Wall Street, like it's come to a complete stop. Wow. New York City has been brought to its knees. Like, okay, that's just a real cool outward observer. And then what if I agreed with, with her in like the first half of chapter two and I'm just like, oh my gosh, Ida, you suck. You stupid hurricane. Like, how dare you, Ida, come in and do it. I hate you, Ida, right? Like I agree with New York City people like, screw you, Ida. I realize Ida is a hurricane, but go with the metaphor. And then in the third one, let's say today, now all of a sudden I'm watching videos of people's houses being ruined. Um, I read that at least nine people have died at this point. And I could move into that space now of like, this is really sad. Like, I'm going to be praying for New York City and crying for New York City. Like, this is, I'm no longer just like, oh, wow, that's bonkers. Like, the train stopped running to like, and people, people's lives are going to be turned upside down. And that makes me feel something. And that's really the direction of where we've headed here in Lamentations. And so I'm just going to talk real quickly. I'm going to give you like a real brief sort of like overview of what the narrator is doing here. And then I want to talk about a couple of things that when you are faced with deep, profound trauma, loss, grief, and you are are the role of the narrator. You're not daughter Zion. You're not the one experiencing it, but you're coming upon someone experiencing it. Some things that the narrator, I think, gets right in the experience of how you care for, show up, and see someone in pain. And so, but we'll get to that. So the first thing is, is one, we see right at the beginning, the narrator. So it's interesting because typically the narrator talks in like second and third person, like to daughter Zion and to God or about daughter Zion and about God. And now in the beginning of this chapter or in this section that we chose, he actually goes into a first person because for the first time we see the narrators talking about himself and how he feels. And what's interesting is he has his own lament for daughter Zion. This is the beginning of verse 11. He talks about how he just can't stop crying for her, right? He talks about like, let me turn my Bible back. He says, my eyes were worn out with tears. Really poetic language, right? He's feeling the grief that she's experienced. And then he even says, like, his innards were roiled and his bile spilled out on the ground, which is super graphic. Uh, but basically, he vomits is what a lot of commentators mean by this. Like, he is so moved to grief and compassion, it overflows out of his mouth onto the ground. And so what do we take from that? Well, one, that's such a picture of what compassion is in the scriptures. And so as modern people or as people who sometimes think like being a stoic, having not that many emotions is like something honorable, that's ridiculous. Like why do we live in an age where we think like we're not supposed to cry, we're not supposed to grieve, we're not supposed to get angry, we're not like we live in this place where like muted emotions other than joy is what it means to be a Christian and that's just bonkers. And so really the picture of compassion in the scriptures both in the Old and New Testament is really this idea that your body is moved. And we understand this, right? Right? Cuz like if you're if you were talking about a girl and she, you know, so her and this guy, they both swiped right on Hinge. Like, oh my gosh, she is so cute. And she is like so into him. And then he's like, okay, well, let's meet up at this bar or wherever at like, let's, let's hit up McDonald's because they got, you know, the McRib is back. And so they like show up and she gets out of her car and she sees him across the parking lot and she's feeling a lot of things. What does she might say? She might say something like, oh, I have butterflies in my stomach. 
right? Because that phrase is capturing that mix of like excitement and nervousness and all that. But the reality is like, she's not just like objectively looking at him and she's like, yes, I find him to be attractive. I think I would like to share some sort of McDonald McRib with him, even though we're not even sure what's in that sandwich. Also, y'all, I love the McRib, so no hate. Uh, and so that's that, like that, like mental ascribing of, oh, I, I enjoy looking at him. I shall go eat with him. That's not how emotions work. They are physical, right? Even the Greek word for talking about compassion is the word splanknon. It's like splanknon. And the whole idea is like uh, splanknon can be both compassion, but also like your innards, your guts, because compassion is actually this gut felt thing, right? So if you've ever experienced this, right, you're, you're hanging out with somebody you care for and they get a phone call, right? And you guys have been having fun. You're goofing off. You're at an arcade. You're playing games. You're having fun. You're going to lunch. You're about to hang out. And then the phone call happens. And then the, you see the look on their face goes from happy to sad. And then they hang up and then they look at you with tears in their eyes and they drop the bomb, whatever it is that that phone call was. So-and-so is hurt. So-and-so is sick. So-and-so has died. Something like that. You know that unless you are so suppressed in your emotions that it feels like a kick to the gut. And that's one of the beautiful things that the narrator is capturing for us is he goes from cool outward observer to his own guts have been moved. He has moved to a gut level compassion. And that is a picture of what compassion looks like in the scriptures. It's how God talks about us when he says that he's compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. It's how Jesus is talking about, like he's moved to compassion for people, how he loves people. And I think it's a call to Christians of how we, when the New Testament says like this, we're to weep with those who weep. That's what Paul is saying. Like we rejoice with those who rejoice and we weep with those who weep and lament is physical, There is a physical component, and we see this in the narrator describing his own physical upsettedness in response to what has happened to Daughter Zion. So that's the first thing that we see happen in this little outline. The second thing is, interestingly enough, is the narrator gives her an explanation for why this happened. So we see this in verse 14 and in verse 17. One, he's continuing to say, hey, look, God did the thing that God said he was always going to do, which is really interesting because remember, why why did God use and allow Babylon to come and take out Jerusalem? It's because she continues to be unrepentant in her sin. And so he acknowledges that. The narrator acknowledges like, hey, God decreed in the days of old that this was going to happen. And so again, he's he's rightly spreading that blame out. But one of the things that he says that's so fascinating here is he says, your prophets gave you basically vain visions and they clapped their hands over like nothing. Like in other words, your prophets failed you. They should have come and given you the visions that were like warning to you destruction is going to happen. And so if you're thinking, wait a minute, We have 13 books of prophets doing that. You're right. You are absolutely right. What this is a reference to is we also know that throughout Israel's history and throughout Judah's history, there would be kings who would have multiple prophets, so to speak. And Like if you could see me air quotes prophets, because what a prophet should be is someone who speaks on behalf of God. But what would happen is you could, it's like pay for prophecy. Like you could pay someone to come in and they would say, oh, thus says the Lord. Um, what is it you want to do? Oh, you want to go beat up on that foreign nation and take their land? Yes, God thus saith that would be fine. Go unto this land. And what is it you want to do unjust things and harm people? Yeah, okay, God's fine with that. Yeah, go unto this land and do these things, right? So that's what would happen. And we actually saw this if in like uh, the book of Amos. We have talked, I love Amos. Obviously, I reference him all the time. I swear he's my Bible boyfriend. But anyways, 
at one point, Amos is talking to Jeroboam II, and he's like, bro, God is not pleased with you. And then Jonah, total butthead Jonah, comes in, and he's like, no, nah, no, nah, man, it's good. We even see this in the book of Numbers with Balaam's on his donkey, and the king wants a prophecy, a foreign king wants a prophecy from Yahweh against Israel. So think about that. And so Balaam is going to go to a foreign king to give a negative prophecy against Israel, God's very people. And what happens? He can't do it. God literally shuts his mouth. It's bonkers. But all that to say, throughout Israel and Judah's history, and really, let's be real, every king, every leader, every person who's ever been in power oftentimes just keeps people around them who tell them what they want to hear. Hey, should we go do this thing that's kind of wrong, but I need somebody to say it's okay so that I don't have to feel bad about it? Oh, yeah. Uh, what does God say? Oh, let me see. Uh, let me roll the dice. Yahtzee! God says it's good, right? So that's what makes the prophets, the actual real prophets, the no air quote prophets, the legitimate come in here and says, thus say the Lord and actually delivers what God says. It's what made them even more unpopular is because there were people who proclaimed to be prophets who said these ridiculous things and justified their unjust behavior in the name of the Lord. And so it's interesting that the narrator understands that, that part of Israel's problem, part of daughter Jerusalem's problem is lots of people failed here. It's not just this one woman who represents Jerusalem, right? Daughter Zion is a metaphor for all of Jerusalem. But what's interesting here is we get the lament from the narrator as well as he is spreading the blame around. He's like, let's talk about what really happened here. And part of Israel's fall, part of Judah's fall, is there were men and maybe women who were, but probably men, um, just because women wouldn't have had this much power and access to the king, but men willing to say whatever they wanted when in fact... Those visions are the very thing that led to their ruin. And so that's one of the things that the narrator points out. And then interestingly enough, at the end of it, at the end of this chapter, or unit, I guess not the chapter, he gives advice to Israel, to Judah. I keep saying Israel because that's a blanket statement. But at this point, Israel is the northern kingdom. Judah is the southern kingdom. I got to stop saying Israel. So he gives daughter Zion some advice. And what's bonkers about this advice, y'all, did y'all, it might have been hard to catch because I know we're reading through poetry, but at the very end of this unit, verses 18 and 19, he looks at her after he has already agreed with her that God did this thing. God threw down your citadels. God is the one who has clouded himself away from you. He ain't even looking at you. He can't even hear you. He's turned his back on you. And again, we talked about how that's not literal, but it's like this figurative, I agree with you. God did these things. And then and then the narrator turns to daughter Zion in verses 18 and 19. He's like, yeah, but you know what? Let me give you a little bit of advice. You should turn to God and beg him to see you. Like you should not stop crying out. Like, let me read this again. Like some of the advice where he says, your pupils should never take a break, which touch beautiful language. He says, cry out to your master, shed like a brook your tears day and night. Give yourself no respite, no break, essentially. Let your pupils be not still. Like, like don't let your eyeballs be still. Sing out in the night and at the beginning of the watches, pour out your heart like water, raise your palms to him. Like, dude, it's interesting, right? Because we have this narrator. He goes from cool, distant observer to, I can't believe God did this. You're right. I agree with you to, gosh, this is, I'm like, I like spilled, I'm, you know, I threw, I vomited over this. Like, I'm, I'm so moved to tears. And then he's like, hey, by the way, you, you should cry out to God. You should cry out day and night to God to fix this thing. And so that brings me to, I want to talk about the three things that he kind of gets right in this chapter. And so I mentioned it already, you know, I went through catastrophic loss and 
And so many other people have as well. What was so unique about this year is that it wasn't unique. What was unique about this year is that everyone was hurting. Everyone was hurting, either on a macroscopic level of there's just a global pandemic, right? On a on a macroscopic level, we lost a half a million people and counting. Actually, it's up to 600,000. I mean, like, and that's just in our country, right? I think that's right. Um, I don't know what the count is today in in September 2021, but the, that's a huge number. Like, I know people who have died. I know people I love who have lost loved ones. And so there's this macroscopic pain. And then, and then you have the camera zooms in on individuals and you've got marriages that fell apart. You've got people who took their lives. You've got people who lost their homes. You've got people who lost their jobs, right? The thing about this year is that it just seems like everyone was hurting. And so I think taking a moment to talk about what, how can you show up in the lives of people who've gone through catastrophic loss, there's some things the narrator does in this chapter that I want to highlight and point out because I think they're really great things to do when you're that person and it helps us to understand how grieving works. And so uh, the first thing is, is that he does feel her pain. I mean, I think that's the first thing is that at a very human level, we can't feel the pain of the whole world, right? Especially right now, we live in a digital age. Like before 100 years ago, we wouldn't really know what was going on in Haiti and Afghanistan to the level that we do now. Now we've got videos. Now we've got like high def 8K videos, photos, and we've got it around the clock. It's no longer just the nightly news. You no longer just felt empathy from 5 to 6 p.m. while mom was cooking dinner and you're sitting in front of the news and Lester Holt is telling you what's going on. Like your phone is nonstop barrage of all that is wrong in the world. And part of that is because... It, there's a lot of wrong in the world. And part of that is because we can just see the whole world now. It's, it's devastating. We can't feel gut level compassion for all those things. Okay. But if that is, be, but if we get compassion fatigue because we have chosen to burn ourselves out over the entire world so that when the person in your life, the person in your circle loses someone they love or they are, have a devastating diagnosis or, or they go through a traumatic experience, and you are unmoved by that, something's, something's broken. We should be moved to gut-level compassion for the people in our lives and, frankly, for some of the stuff that happens in the world. I'm not, I'm not saying you, shouldn't, you should always be unmoved by what's happening in the world. That's not at all what I'm saying. I'm just saying there should, though, be a response, a gut-level moving of your body, physical response and compassion for the people that God has given you in your lives. And the reason why is not just because the narrator does that here. It's because we see God do that. It's how Jesus and, and the Trinitarian God is described. And so if we are to be made in the image of Christ's likeness, then our response to pain and suffering should be at a physical level. The second thing is when one of the things that the narrator does for Daughter Zion is he asks her rhetorical questions like this, like, how can I possibly compare your pain to something else? Is there anything like this in the world? And the reality is like the answer is like no. Like on a like on a literal level, there has never been a city set apart by Yahweh who's put up on a hill where festivals and sacrifices take place, where God and man are going to meet, and then God sends 500 years of prophets warning them, and then they don't listen. So God says, okay, my anger has now been activated to the moment of justice. The day of the Lord is upon you. Wrath is coming down. And then Babylon comes in and absolutely vanquishes. And like, like is there any 
anything like that in history? No, no. Like, were there times that the Ptolemies and the Seleucids would come into Jerusalem and, and bug them? Yes. Yeah, the Egyptians and the Syrians, you know, bug them. That's, that's like foreign policy, right? But this level of destruction to a city that belonged uniquely to God, where Zion was the city set on a hill, and it's the temple is the place where God and man met in unique ways, a festival site. And so when the narrator is like, is there anything I can do to compare this? No. And one of the things that I think is so important that we see from the narrator is when you are trying to love and care for someone who's gone through catastrophic grief, it's often not helpful to say you know what they're going through or to compare their grief to someone else's. Now, is, is it true that sometimes there's parallels? Sure, sure. But what happens in those moments is you feel really unseen because it feels so unique and personal to you. And so one of the, I have a friend, a dear, dear friend who lost her father to suicide a couple of years before I lost my sister to suicide. And I remember the, one of the gifts that she gave me, she called me and we were talking about it. And she was like, I don't know what you're going through. Um, but I remember some of the heartache and I just love you and I see you and I know how painful it is. And it was like this gift of, I don't know exactly, but I can approximate some of it. And I think that is what is, is helpful. It's not to say that you, we are completely un, unknowing of pain, but to compare pains as if they're one-to-one is, is not helpful. And I think it's really helpful when the narrator says to her, like, there's nothing to compare your pain to. It is, it's a catastrophic loss. It's a catastrophic loss. And just because somebody out there is listening like, oh, I too lost a sibling to suicide. It's not the same, right? There were things that I had to experience the week of that I wouldn't wish on my enemies because of the nature and the way that it happened. And that the things that happened after the news were more traumatic to me than even the news of losing my sister. And I know these are details that y'all don't need, but my point is, is like, it, if we're going to learn from the scriptures, we can learn that it's not always helpful to go, oh, I, I know exactly what you're going through. No, you don't. And sometimes it's helpful to just go, I just can't imagine the pain you're going through. But I see you. And I hurt with you. And I'm so sorry. And I, and I can recognize, I can say to you, wow, this loss is catastrophic. There is no loss like this. And that's what the narrator does. And then finally, one of the things the narrator does is he recognizes he can't fix it. He can't fit. Like the crazy part to me is at the end of the unit when he's like, yeah, turn to God, the very God that they have just indicted saying he did this. And what's really beautiful is the narrator, he says, what can I do for you? How can I console you? And he knows the answer is he can't. Now, look, that's not a pass to say that we don't show up for people. I think what the narrator does, he sees her, right? If you remember in chapter one, all she wants is for someone to see her pain. She's crying out, someone look at me and acknowledge what happened to me. And what's really beautiful is the narrator does that. Not only does he do that, he moves like a journey in that direction. He goes from, eh, look at what happened. Wow, I'm just a sideline news reporter to, you're right, I agree with you what happened to I'm vomiting over this. And so the daughter Zion gets her answer in some ways of like, someone look at me. But when he comes to her, while it is beautiful and good and right that he would acknowledge her, that he would sit in her grief with her, that he would declare to her, hey, these things that happened to you are astronomically wrong and and hurtful or not wrong. I mean, what God did, God's not wrong, but y'all get what I'm saying. Like, this is a brokenness beyond comparison. And then he says to her though, but I can't, heal you. Like when he says, who can heal? He's like, no one except for the one who did it. 
And that's what's so crazy about this is he sends her back to God. Cry out to him. Don't stop crying out to him. Make him look at you. Because the very one who is responsible for all this destruction, according to daughter Zion and to the narrator, is the very one who can restore it. When we say God can turn beauty from ashes, we mean that. When we say he can restore the years of the locusts of Eden, we mean that. Even if he's the reason why there's ashes, even if he's the reason why the locusts were sent in, He's the only one that can heal. He's the only one that can restore, especially at the level of catastrophic loss that we're talking about. And so are there certain losses that we can help replace? Yeah. I mean, like I come home, there's a bag of McDonald's on the table. I don't know. McDonald's is clearly on my brain. But anyways, my roommate has it. I assume she's done with her fries. I eat all of her fries. She comes out and she's like, homie, I was not done with the fries. I had to take a phone call. And I'm like, oh, got it. Great. I can drive back to McDonald's, bring her back fries. Like that's not the loss that we're talking about. There are levels and degrees here. But when we're talking about catastrophic loss, when we're talking about the loss of life, the loss of home, the loss of safety, the loss of security, the loss of your sense of well-being, when you are delirious over and and that your head is spinning over what you've experienced, the narrator gets this right. Turn to God, even if you feel like he's abandoned you, even if you feel like he can't hear you, because he's the only one that can fix it anyways. Only God can heal this. And the narrator just gets that right. He doesn't try to rescue her. He doesn't pretend to have some fix because he doesn't. Who can restore the walls of Jerusalem? Who can return them back to the land? Who can raise up princes and prophets again? Who can restore Zion to that city on a hill set apart for the world? Only Yahweh. Only Yahweh. And so I know I've gone way over on time on this one, but I think it's really important for us to see what it looks like to be the person coming alongside someone in catastrophic loss. I think it's important that we feel what they feel. And we're not going to feel it to the degree. We're certainly not. But we should be moved to compassion. I think we need to not try and compare their pain to other people's pains or simply approximate it and go, oh, yeah, so it's kind of like, no, just let it be what it is. Just let the pain be what it is. And then finally, we need to remember that there is only one, one God under heaven and earth who can fix these kinds of pains. There's only one God who can restore what is broken when you're talking about this kind of brokenness. Only God can help her. And the narrator understands that and encourages her to turn back to the one God who can help her. All right, I'm way over on time, but I love you guys. If nobody's told you that they love you, I do. But way more importantly, God does. Peace.